any of you who are sitting on the floor in the back want to move closer up so that you don't have people in front of you, that would be great. Or not, maybe you like it back there. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about um, one of those wonderful lists. This particular list is called The Eight Worldly Dharmas. And um, it's a list, I think I've heard about it probably as long as I've been practicing, so I don't know, 25 years or so. And, um, but I don't think I've ever, ever given a talk on it before. So this is an experiment tonight. We'll see how it goes. And actually I'm going to ask you to do a little work on it too. And I like it because it's a list, in some ways if you think about it, it's a list that describes everything that creates difficulty and suffering in our lives, one way or another. So here's the list. Gain and loss. It comes in pairs, actually. So gain and loss. Pleasure and pain. Praise and blame. And fame and obscurity. So there you have it. Gain and loss. Pleasure and pain. Praise and blame. Fame and obscurity. And as I was thinking about it, I realized... That's pretty much everything where we get attached, isn't it? And it's pretty much... Um, and attachment is actually that place w- w- the Buddha says is the place that really is the c- place of creation of suffering. It's sometimes called the eight worldly concerns. It's sometimes called the eight worldly winds, which was one of the descriptions that I like. And, you know, I thought about it a little bit developmentally because it's interesting. It actually seems like these are almost part of our human nature. Because when you're this big, you're really interested in being full and warm and dry and having someone, mom or someone, Around, So you really want the things that feel good. And what you really don't want is empty and wet and alone and cold. Those are all... And so even infants are the pleasure and pain thing, the comfort and discomfort thing, is very much part of how they interact with the world. And of course, it gets worse, right? Then you go to school, and or you start growing up, and there's gold stars, and you know, good job, even good job is a little suspect, and certainly good girl and good boy is very suspect, and um, there's A's, but then of course there's. Um, the black marks and the failures and the F's, right? And so there's a lot of praise and blame that begins to kick in very, very early for us as kids. And then, of course, you get a little older and cute clothing and cars and money start to come in and sort of getting stuff, um, 
whatever particular form of gear you're interested in. Um, and then that sense that you could lose it. You might not have enough. And then there's the loss of the money or the clothing or the girl or you know, not being able to have a car or whatever. And, and then also along with that comes a, a kind of fame, right, that happens even when you're quite young, being popular. And I'll bet every person in this room has suffered around whether or not you were popular or not. I certainly know that I did. And I wasn't. And, um, <laughs> and then, you know, after, as we grow up, popular becomes well-known and, and famous. And, and then the flip side of that is obscurity. So it's just woven into the fabric of our being, the stuff, these eight worldly winds and we we get really attached and sometimes you know one pole or the other I mean it may be that you really don't want to be famous you don't want anybody to see you you like your obscurity and then something happens that puts you out in the public eye most of us are um, more interested in praise than blame and pleasure than pain and gain and then loss but um, you know not always and, um, and we ceaselessly try to have the things that we want, the gain and the pleasure, the, the fame and um, the praise. And we discover, oddly enough, we suffer, of course, a lot when we don't have them. But then we also discover that even when we have them, they don't last, right? And we lose them. And so in the end, there isn't anything that really... Um, works with them. They are part of the deal. It's not that any amount of practice is going to make them go away. They, they're, they're just here as part of, of what it is to be people who live in the world. And so really then the art of practice is how we deal with them. So I just wanted to look at each one separately for just a minute. So, <clears throat> last week I was at Spirit Rock, and um, we did a two-day retreat for the staff there. And as part of the retreat, it was not a silent retreat, it was a very interactive retreat in many ways. And as part of the retreat, we had skit night. <laughs> and one of the skits was the first night at a retreat. And, um, and part of the skit was the student at the retreat trying to get comfortable. And, you know, puts down his cushion, and then he puts down another cushion, and then his cushion's over here, and cushion's over there, and, you know, shawls and benches, and, and all of the things that we do because we don't like being uncomfortable, Right? Even pain, pleasure and pain are even an issue on the cushion. And we are, in our culture, we are really comfort junkies. I mean, we like to be, you know, your down quilt and your <laughs> pillow just so and your special fleece or whatever it is that you have that allows you to be comfortable. And we work very, very hard not to have um, discomfort in our being, and we don't like it. And so um, that's 
you know, and, and certainly in other areas of our life, it can be very difficult when pain comes along. And um, I know I remember Stephen Levine in the very, very early years of my practice tell, suggesting that when you wake up in the morning, you actually use that, those first few moments as part of your practice. Because often when you wake up, you're kind of crunked around in some odd position that maybe your body has already been in too long, you know that place. It gets worse as you get older, I'm noticing. And he said, just stay there, don't move. And really notice the discomfort. And allow yourself to really work with it, because the instinct is to get up, to move, to pee, to get the glass of water, whatever it is that you need to do in that moment. And he said, you know, you're not always going to be able to do that. There may come the moment when there you are, in the hospital, on the gurney, in traction, whatever it is that's going on, and that will be your practice in that moment. And if you haven't learned how to be with pain and discomfort, where will you be when that moment comes? And it will come for all of us, one way or another. So praise and blame. I mean, each one of these could be a whole talk, you know. And someone said to me just yesterday, um, quoting someone else, that praise is like Teflon and blame is like Velcro. (laughs) And what she was saying is that very interesting place where as we go back and forth, one of the things that happens is we forget, we value the praise, but we forget it. And blame is like, you know, you one word of blame and you are toast, right? And I was laughing and I was saying to her, you know, at the end of retreats, often we, we ask people to fill out an evaluation, you know, how was the retreat? And sometimes I retreat, teach retreats with 50 or 60 or more people. And so one sheet of paper will say, that Mary Grace or. Mm. You know, why is she teaching, or her talks were terrible, or whatever it is that they say. All the rest of them, you know, 59 of them may say, boy, Mary Grace, she was fabulous, but one of them says, nope. And you know which one I remember, right? It's that one. And we're all like that. You know, it's the one criticism. It's that place where we get so hooked by this need for praise and and this dislike of blame. And it comes, you know, no matter what you do in your work, in your life, um, there will be some way in which people will respond to you, and often people respond with some kind of praise or blame. Sometimes, obviously sometimes it's well-deserved. Sometimes praise is very well-deserved. Sometimes blame is deserved. But it's that push-pull of the reactivity to it that's really the problem. So gain and loss. Hmm. So as I wrote this, actually it's a handwritten note because it was after I got some stuff written down on the computer. I was thinking of um, a time just a few weeks ago when I was on the Big Island and I was there um, when they um, issued an evacuation order for the village of Volcano, which is where I live when I'm there. And um, because of the eruption and the, of gas and ash that is happening 
constantly now um, at the summit of Kilauea. And so I had actually made a list because we had been told that this might happen. So there you are in your house and you have to think, what will I take? What will I take? What's worth taking? And so I'd made my list because I figured if somehow we had to evacuate in the middle of the night, I might not be thinking too clearly. But it was very interesting to pack up my car and close up my house and know that because it was kind of confusing and I didn't know what was going on, I didn't know when I would be able to go back. And of course there are other kinds of evacuation situations where your house is in immediate danger and you're faced with losing everything. Interesting. I now understand why people don't leave, actually. It was very, very hard to do, even though I had some sense that I would be back. And the truth of it is, it was a non-event and I was back just a few hours later. And so that was the end of the evacuation. But it was a very interesting exercise in what is this stuff, the artwork, the vases, the clothing, the computer, you know, what do you take, what do you leave in a circumstance like that? And, um, and we, you know, we, the, the, what is that bumper sticker, the, the person with the most toys wins, you know, for he who dies with the most toys wins. And so we have, we're in a culture that's like that. You know, the more toys you have, the more gear, the more clothing. How many catalogs did you get in your mail today? You know, we, we get endless numbers of those things. And if you don't get them in your mail, you go online and you can shop all day and all night. And we're, we're constantly trying to get more. And then, of course, the fame and obscurity thing about... Um, really wanting to get some kind of recognition for who we are and what it is that we are doing and, and being seen. And, and it's really hard for most of us when, even if, if we live relatively modest lives, if somebody doesn't see us for who we are and what we are doing. We are so drawn to this. And so there was, I found this one quote from Lama Yeshe, and, and he says about these eight worldly dharmas, he said they're like, like when moths see a candle flame. And he said when moths see a candle flame, they think it's a good place to go. So we think, you know, oh, fame, yeah, you know, gain. And they don't think that it will burn their body. They have no fear. If they were, if they were afraid, they wouldn't so purposely fly into it. And so he's saying, you know, we don't see the truth of these, of these things, that, that they're really sticky and we go for them and, and we don't see um, what will happen to us even in the wanting of them and the pushing away of the opposite. So here's a story. I'm going to shorten it and then we're going to talk some. So this is a story about... Um, um, a student, and he was actually quite a famous poet in China, and he was living in a place where there was a famous Zen master. And so one day the student was feeling, you know, he was, he'd been practicing, and he was feeling pretty good about his practice. It was going well, he thought. 
And so, you know, his meditation was kind of quiet and things were good. And so he wrote a poem about his practice. And he said, and he sent it to the Zen master for verification, for sort of saying, yeah, this is right, this is where your practice is. So the poem goes like this. Bowing with my highest respect to the deva of devas, whose fine light illuminates the whole universe, the eight winds, so these eight worldly, worldly dharmas that we've been talking about, the eight worldly dharmas cannot move me, for I am, for I am sitting upright on the golden purple lotus blossom. So you can, you know, this is quite a poem about your practice to say, you know, there I am, I'm not moved by any of these eight worldly dharmas, forget it about praise and blame, gain and loss, none of that, I am just right there on my purple lotus blossom. You'll notice my purple lotus blossom right here. So he sends the poem over to the Zen master, and the Zen master, on receiving it, picks up his brush and he writes down one word as his comment. And so he sends the word back to the student who opens the paper. And he's so excited to read the comment on his poem. And on the page, he noticed nothing but the one word which said, fart. (laughs) (laughs) So he was just furious, just furious, a blaze of anger, you know, and he gets on a boat and he crosses the river, because that's where the Zen master is, and so before the boat even lands, the Zen master is down there waiting for him, and the student says, Master, we are such intimate Dharma friends, it is fine that you do not compliment my practice or my poem, but how can you insult me like this? And innocently, as if nothing had happened, the Zen master says, how have I insulted you? And so the student shows him the paper with this word, fart. And the Zen master laughs and he said, oh, he said, didn't you say that the eight worldly dharmas can't move you? How come you were sent across the river with just a fart? <laughs> so here what the master had said the student was really embarrassed and we hope he went back and practiced some more so I'd like you to just sit for a minute and just I'm going to ask you some questions ask you to reflect about a couple of things then I'm going to ask you to talk to each other for a few minutes So just thinking about these eight things, gain. Just think about where they are in your own lives. Gain, you know. Where is it that you're really attached to having things and to having things go your way or to collecting things or to gear, whatever it is that your form of gain is. And loss, you know, what happens when something fails or you lose money or your stocks drop or whatever it is that happens or or you lose your job you know really scary and so loss and pleasure you know 
noticing where is it that you're attached to receiving pleasure, to having things that are pleasurable and comfortable? And where is it that you're upset at having pain? And where is it with praise for you? Where are you attached to having good words said about you or about your actions? And blame. Where is it where it's difficult and displeasing when you're blamed or bad things are said? And where is it that you seek fame and wanting to be seen? And how is it for you when you're not seen and you're not so well known and there's some displeasure that arises around that? So just reflect on that for a moment because it's, it's actually a really useful kind of measure of where are you in your practice? Where is it that you need to work um, in terms of your life in the world? And then I'd like you to just turn and find one or two people and just talk about what you saw in terms of your own, your own response to these eight worldly dharmas. So just find a friend and I'm going to give you about five minutes, that's all. So just a few words about about um, where are you? One one place I found this described this as an indicator of spiritual maturity. I don't think I want to go that far, but really looking at what it says about you. Just turn. Just a couple of people. I'll get us a little more light. Don't know each other's names, find it out. Yes. <laughs> For all of them? Yeah. <laughs>